Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to The Lavender Lifestyle, the podcast on lifestyle design for millennials. I'm Eileen, and I'm here to guide you to become a master artist of life. Every Sunday, you'll get new insight and inspiration on how to create your dream life. After the episode, the conversation continues in our Lavender Lifestyle Facebook group, so I can't wait to see you there. Life is an art. Make it your masterpiece. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Lavender Lifestyle. It's Eileen, your host. I'm back with another interview today, and our guest is Clark Scott. Clark Scott is a writer and director who draws on his years of philosophical education and contemplative practice to tell stories of human potential. With a keen sense for the profound and an honesty of spirit, Clark's projects often reflect his own concerns of a life well-lived. Hi, Clark. Good day, Eileen. How are you going? I'm doing well. How are you? Very well. Cool. So let's talk about your story because I got an email from you and you mentioned that you are a former Buddhist monk and then ex-PhD student turned filmmaker and solopreneur. So that's a lot in one sentence. <laughs> Can <laughs> yeah. we like, kind of like take that apart? Let, let's start with the Buddhist monk story. So what made you want to become a Buddhist monk? And t- tell me a little about that. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a long story, uh, and I know we're short on time, so I'll, I'll try and give you the <laughs> yeah. cliff notes. But back in the day, a little over 20 years ago, I was uh, at the Victorian College of the Arts, which is a music school here in Australia. It's a little like Juilliard. And I was kind of, uh, not groomed, but my family, uh, or at least my grandfather, was very, very musical. So it was kind of something that I was not pushed into, but certainly the direction at which I felt Uh, that my life was going to go and I was quite good at it but uh, when I got into the school itself um, there was just this kind of feeling of emptiness and I remember someone saying to me a friend she she turned to me one day and said you look existentially unhappy and it was the first time I'd ever heard that word Uh, but I knew exactly what she meant she was this look of concern on her face and she handed me a book and the book was the Tibetan book of living and dying Look, kind of looking back now, it was almost like it was a metaphor for that point in my life. Particularly after I read that book, I was at a crossroads between kind of life and death, east and west. Do mm-hmm. I stay where I am, have a comfortable life, but continue to feel unfulfilled? Or do I kind of pivot and see what this new thing is all about? So fast forward a little bit, and I'm now a monk mm-hmm. uh, living in Italy. Wow. I have no hair. I've shaved my head. I'm wearing a dress. Like my family were just, uh, you know, they were, they were very, very concerned. I can't really tell you what it was exactly that made me do it other mm-hmm. than there was this intuition that propelled me. It was, it was a compelling thing that I felt. I almost felt compelled to just right. check it out and, and see what this was all about. And not in an impulsive way. I thought about it a lot before I ended up doing it. But mm-hmm. uh, it was just this kind of deep sense that something wasn't right with my life and that perhaps this other thing would 
provide some answers to life. And it did. It absolutely did. Yeah. So can you talk about how long were you a Buddhist monk and what exactly did you learn or gain from that experience? The tradition itself is, is, is actually, so there's many different schools of Buddhism. The school of Buddhism that I belong to was the school of Buddhism that the Dalai Lama belongs to. Now, that's, mm-hmm. that particular school is very philosophical. So philosophically speaking, it's, it's incredibly rigorous. And going on to do the PhD like 10 years later, I really learned just how um, deep thinking they were as a culture. So it, it's, you know, sometimes Buddhism is seen as this kind of new agey thing and we all meditate and everyone feels lovey And it's, it can be like that, but it's not necessarily like that. So if we talk about things like metaphysics, the ontology of the world, it has a rich tradition. So I, I was grounded in a very firm philosophical foundation, but its, uh, it's motivation for being philosophical is not just the love of wisdom, um, a la the Western tradition, um, where it's just about, you know, asking questions about truth and never really coming up with a, a, a really strong answer or um, doing it just for the sake of doing it, just for the sake of, uh, of asking the question. Buddhism has this notion that we are experiencing the unsatisfactoriness of life but there is a way out. And, and the reason why we are experiencing that is that we have dysfunctional states of mind. And that if we replace those dysfunctional states of mind, so examples of that would just, they're quite simple. It's like anger, like pride, pride in the sense of being arrogant. So not pride in pride in your work or um, pride in being a good person, but pride as in arrogance. Those kinds of things are dysfunctional states of mind because we think that they're going to bring us happiness. But if you've ever tried to speak to an angry person when you're angry, all that happens <laughs> is more anger as the result. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's dysfunctional by nature. So we replace mm-hmm. those, those states of mind, those minds, with functional, constructive, positive, virtuous states of mind like loving kindness, um, compassion, autonomy, and wisdom. Now, wisdom is a very, very strong part of the tradition. So it's not just about adopting, you know, someone else's viewpoint. And I may have shaved my head and, and started to wear a, a, a dress. Um, and of course, I say that jokingly. I was not just adopting a lifestyle. I've always said that the well, the Buddhist monk's robes were very much like a uniform. And being a, a monk was very much like being an athlete. So an athlete, someone going to the Olympics, training for the Olympics, wears a special uniform and they get up early in the morning and they go training and they eat special foods and they don't go out, you know, partying and getting drunk and doing this and that. And and the reason why they're doing that is this future goal. A Buddhist monk or nun wears a special uniform, gets up early in the morning, doesn't eat, you know, certain kinds of foods, doesn't go out partying, but what they're training for, they're training their mind rather than mm-hmm. their body. And the, but it's the same kind of thing, this future goal of becoming fully awake, fully awake mm-hmm. from this deluded state that we're in where we believe that anger, jealousy, pride, arrogance, all of those things, they are a natural part of the human condition. And the human condition is a permanent state that no one can get out of. Definitely, I can tell that you've learned and gained a lot, but it's, it's never ending, right? Seeking how to detach yourself from those emotions and how to stay present, right? I guess it's like a never-ending journey. Learning to step outside of yourself to see that this anger is not you, but yet like have the compassion and the kindness around like accepting that, you know what I mean? Accepting that it's there. Totally. 
Totally. That's exactly right. So uh, let's talk about your life after that. What about the going to try to get a PhD? Tell me about the turning moment that led you into filmmaking. When I was doing the PhD, I was still a monk. The PhD was uh, an attempt to marry my vocation with a way of, of earning a living because as a monk, you don't get paid to be a monk. You still mm-hmm. have to earn a living. So I still had to pay rent and do all those kinds of things. So I was, for a long time, I was, I was a monk and working in web development. So I, I mm. started off as a programmer and moved up um, to more of a senior role later on. But I got sick of that. And that's not what I wanted to do. And I found myself doing small little projects like I'd work for three months and then take six months off and just study and meditate and actually be a monk. So the PhD mm-hmm. was trying to marry those two. The filmmaking thing happened because... For part of the PhD, I was in, in India living in um, very close to the Dalai Lama. I was in a, a place called McLeod Gunj, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas. So if you can imagine my little apartment looked out over a valley in, on a clear day, which is not very often in India, but um, particularly after it just rained, you could see you know, maybe 100, 200 kilometers um, into this massive valley. To my left was snow-capped. Mm-hmm. Himalayan mountains and to my right was the Dalai Lama's house and you could actually see Amazing. his house wow. and um, I was there for a year and for most of that I was completely burnt out so I'd spent four years trying to get this thing written and I researched my backside off to the point that I was burnt out so I found myself um, trying to distract myself in order to feel just feel better in my body because you know when you burn out, you're, there's so much stress in your body that you physically can't do things. So sitting down in front of the computer to write the dissertation would make me feel nauseous. So I, mm-hmm. I started to do things that were a little bit more creative. And there was just real joy and both physically and mentally in doing that. So by this stage, I'd realized that I wasn't going to complete my PhD. I'd, I'd run out of time. Mm-hmm. The reason why I did it was to find a, a, a way of earning a living. I wasn't going to be able to do that. So the f- whole filmmaking thing was a combination of going back 20 years to my creative roots and a means of earning money. So I, I came back to mm-hmm. Australia and then, so I wanted to create films that had some kind of meaningful uh, impact that said, had something to say from a philosophical point of view. But in order to do that, I, need to, I needed to learn a whole bunch of different things. So I deconstructed what I would need to learn from all the way from producing, directing, editing, sound, the whole thing. And then I just start and all the way, you know, through to learning editing and screenwriting. So the first thing that I did was went and learned how to edit. So I found myself a job editing horrible wedding videos <laughs> nice. in order to both pay rent and learn as I was going. Yeah. So that was the kind of pivot to that. But it was all that the motivation was to end up producing something like what I did, which was a, a thousand moments later, a movie that the theme is that love is a choice. That was the um, the kind of the mm. premise, the philosophical premise is that love is not something we find. Sometimes we think that that somehow if I just meet the right person, that I'll find love. To my mind, love is actually a choice. Ironically, after I wrote, directed, edited, and almost had the film finished, I met my now wife. Oh, nice. uh, and there was not a lot of choice in that. Um, <laughs> it was very, very weird. The choice for me to love her continually on a daily basis, that absolutely is a choice. 
And if you've anyone that's been in a, a long-standing relationship, and ours is only going on a couple of years, but every day you, you choose to, to turn up to that relationship. You choose to turn up to life. It's a mm-hmm. choice. How we met, that almost, that doesn't really feel like a choice. So I kind of laugh at myself that I, I had, you know, I was so serious about making this movie that was all about love. Love is a choice. And, uh, and then the person who I end up falling in love with after I'd given my monk's robes and vows back uh-huh. uh, and made the choice to return to kind of our culture. Yeah, it just kind it of wasn't a choice. It just turned up. It was weird, very weird. I think that's, that's very interesting because it, it just shows you that whatever you believe, like you, you can still open your mind that much more because, yeah, yeah, right? Totally. It, it wasn't exactly what you thought. But I do agree. I mean, yes, love is a choice when you're in a relationship and every day you're working at it. It's definitely work. But I mean, so much of it is like, universal forces or fate yeah exactly whatever you want to say something that brings two people together and that's not necessarily a choice but it's i mean the commitment part is a choice what you do after that is absolutely a choice yeah do you love to learn and try new things are you a creative looking to sharpen your skills or explore other mediums well skillshare is an online learning community with over 16,000 classes in graphic design illustration and more you can learn everything from logo design to visual thinking to watercolor classes are perfect for the professional designer looking to get a leg up at work or the freelancer who wants to attract more clients and build her brand skillshare teachers include work designers with years of experience and aiga award winners such as ellen lupton debbie millman and seymour quast with skillshare you'll get unlimited access to all of this for a low monthly price never pay per class again personally i've taken classes in branding marketing watercolor and even floral arranging you really get so much value from even a 30-minute class thankfully skillshare is giving all lavender lifestyle listeners one month of unlimited access absolutely free so go to skillshare.com slash eileen to redeem your free month that's skillshare.com slash a-i-l-e-e-n all right back to the podcast so you also have an online course called Think Like a Meditator. Can you tell us more about that? So Think Like a Meditator, How to Unlock Your Hidden Potential to an Extraordinary Life is the subtitle. It's not a course about meditation per se. Meditation is a component, but it really is It is a course about deconstructing our lived experience to really understand what it is that's going on and why we fail. So I know I've, I have in my life and I'm sure everyone out there that's listening at some point has done something and it hasn't quite worked as they thought. So for, for me, it was the PhD. Basically, the course is about breaking down our lived experience to really understand what it is psychologically that's going on that prevents us from living our full potential. And that if we can begin to see these patterns that we have in our psychology, so I break our lived experience down into what I call the cogs of our lived experience. So one is dispositional narrative. Dispositional narrative is the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and that these stories when they're, you know, for instance, my father as a young man used to say to me all the time, I'm not as smart as everyone else. He's talking about himself. Mm. I'm not as smart as everyone else, but I've been successful. And I've been successful because I had to work harder than everyone else. And I heard that from when I was a little boy. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I believed that. I no longer believe that. But because of that, 
when I did my my research into my PhD, I worked really, really hard. Now, mm-hmm. I loved the research aspect. So I'd read a book and I'd make notes and I'd, you know, get all this research data out of it. And I'd turn to the bibliography and then I'd see, oh, there's another three books that I could read from that. So I'd go and find those books, read those books and do the same thing with those books. So <laughs> for four years in my PhD, I did... That's a lot of work. I, 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 all I did was research. So I spiraled down this pit of perfectionism because uh-huh. of this dispositional narrative and uh-huh. in then in, and I couldn't see what I was doing and because of that because of that that was what was the real enabler to me not being able to complete my PhD so I, I, I never even got to the point where I had a dissertation to submit so I didn't really fail I just didn't mm-hmm. complete it but it was mm-hmm. because of this aspect of my lived experience. So the course is about journaling this and really seeing these patterns in our ecology and in our behaviour so that we get a really good understanding of how we relate to ourselves and to others and the world around us so that we can live the life that we all want because we all want to live an extraordinary life. But for whatever reason, and I say it is our psychology, it can get in our way. So... Yeah, I say meditation is an, a diagnostic and therapeutic tool used in the the Good Life Project. It's not just a way to become more relaxed or more... I mean, it, it does relax you, but that's not the reason for it. I like to think of meditation more like it is a diagnostic tool in, insofar as it can re, you can begin to understand why you think the things you think. Mm. So if you think in a dysfunctional way, you can begin to see right. you know, the feedback loops and these patterns of dysfunctionality out of which we make these poor decisions. Like I made the decision just to keep researching because it felt good and I thought I was doing the, wrong, the right thing. And in fact, what I was doing was the wrong thing. Four years later, it's like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, meditation, yeah, it does that. It helps you become more aware of what you're thinking. And I think what a lot of what you're saying is just realizing our self-talk, the things that we keep saying to ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves about our own lives or about our own personalities, whatever we believe, yeah. it really, it can really hold us back sometimes. So, I mean, what, what would you say is your tip on getting out of that? Like once you're aware I have this, you know, pattern of thinking, what's the next step? Brene Brown says that uh, once you see, once you see a pattern, I think she says, once you see a pattern, you can't unsee it. And Mm -hmm. I reckon that's absolutely true that once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. The hard part is actually seeing it in the first place. So meditation will help that. Journaling will also help it because we can Mm -hmm. see, you're right, that meditation can help you see self-talk, but self-talk can be highly delusional. Like we can see it, but not really understand what it is. So if you couple that with journaling, then over a period of time, you'll begin to see these patterns. And then from there, it's just a matter of either like changing your behavior so that mm-hmm. that thing, whatever that thing is, it's a hard, it's actually a hard question to answer because yeah. it really depends on what that story is. If it's highly corrosive, what that pattern is, and that it's based out of the delusion of anger then I, I would recommend one kind of um, remedy for that. You know, So an example might be passive-aggressive behaviour when you feel like you're being threatened. There would be one kind of remedy for that. But if the, the pattern is kind of a almost a fawn-like, passive, approval-seeking kind of behaviour, then the remedy would be very, very different. So the first mm-hmm. thing you need to, to do is see the patterns. And then uh, I think this is the reason why philosophical education is important because... 
through that, you'll know yourself the remedy to to put in place for that particular delusion. So uh, having an understanding of psychology, I, I study Western psychology. I study um, science, marrying the two, and I had to for the PhD. My PhD mm-hmm. was was not a PhD in Buddhism. It was a PhD in a Western university in a Western philosophical department in a Western university. So I was being tested from our culture's point of view. I was just taking theories from Buddhist philosophy and then parsing them via Western philosophy. So having a a good foundation across the board and understanding different traditions, I think is also important because having that kind of broad and deep understanding allows you to draw on your your own wisdom rather than just reading it in from a book or hearing it in a podcast and then just adopting it. You've got to really understand why that thing works and in order to understand why that thing works you've got to see how it works so for back full circle onto meditation the way to see how it works is to sit down quietly and just watch your mind i agree meditation and journaling so i I guess yeah it really depends on what type of self-talk you catch yourself but yeah let's focus on finding the pattern and bringing awareness to it first yeah totally well, thank you so much, Clark. Lastly, uh, where can our listeners find you online? Clark Scott. That's Clark with an E. ClarkScottEducation.com would be the uh, the best place. Just Or you can just Google my name and there you'll see. I've got a couple of different websites, one for the filmmaking, one for the educational side. There's also at the ClarkScottEducation.com website, there's some free training where I go into more detail about what I was just talking with these patterns and our lived experience and all of that kind of jazz. Totally. Journal, yeah. So there's some free training there as well if people want to check that out. Awesome. So if you guys want to check out more about Clark Scott's film or his online course, Think Like a Meditator, I'll have all the links in the show notes and the blog post below. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Awesome. Thank you. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to The Lavender Lifestyle. If you like the podcast, please show your support by leaving a review on iTunes. It helps me so much and also helps other people find the show. You can also catch me on YouTube and Instagram at Lavender, where I have even more content for the artist of life. All right, love you all. Bye. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 